Father, with all our hearts, we praise You for Your magnificent grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank You for the delights of knowing You and being brought into fellowship with You through our great Redeemer, Jesus. Thank You for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that You have given Him to us in order that working from within, He might keep time with the working of Your Word from without and marry our minds to its truth and our hearts to its grace. We pray as we look to You with open hearts and mouths that You will fill them tonight. We pray again that in Your mercy You will not disappoint us, but that You will bring us to see the grace of Christ, that You will bring us to feel our need of Christ, that You will satisfy us with the riches of the glory and the grace of Christ, and that as we leave together this evening and go into the rest of this week, we may go as those who have been with Jesus, and that others who meet with us, who sense the atmosphere of love for Him in our lives, may also come to trust and serve and love Him too. So speak to us, we pray through Your Word. We ask it in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Now we've come some of you will be thinking at last to the great eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're going to read there this evening in Romans chapter 8 and the first four verses of the passage. You'll find the passage is printed in the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you if you don't have a copy of your own or if you would rather follow along in the English Standard Version which we use, you'll find that particular Bible is an English Standard Version, and we read God's Word in Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4. Let us hear God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. At the risk of leading any visitors to our church this evening to the false impression that all of the ministers of this congregation are in one way or another criminals, at that risk, let me begin by saying that actually my favorite programs on television are all crime programs. My favorite books are all criminal books, and my favorite movies are by and large also about criminals. And so I have seen this particular scene countless numbers of times sometimes in a back street in Soho, London, sometimes in an alley and through an alley to another back street in New York City, occasionally in a very lavish and plush office in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and into those three diverse places a criminal walks and pulls a diamond out of his pocket. And the next thing that happens has always 
fascinated me since childhood. It's something I've always wanted to be able to do. The little man, usually from somewhere in Eastern Europe, puts into his eye this little magnifying glass, the loop. It magnifies the diamond, I believe, ten times. And then you hear these strange grunting sounds as the man admires all the facets of the diamond. Even that magnificent diamond that tonight rests upon your wife's finger, if you're married, feels, comparatively speaking, smooth as you put your finger on it. But the crown of that diamond has probably 33 different facets or sides. And the grunting noises that the little man from Eastern Europe is making as he looks down through his magic cylinder at the diamond that the criminal has passed on are expressions of admiration and wonder and beauty at the various facets of this diamond. And Paul is teaching us here in these chapters in Romans particularly chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, that one of the things we need to learn to do is to look at his teaching and to look at the Christian life as one single diamond that has many different facets. I mentioned last Sunday evening when we were studying Romans chapter 7, the famous story of the great Scottish preacher Alexander White, who, if a commentary on Romans 7, 14 to 25, did not say that this was Paul the Christian, would simply wrap up the commentary, send it back to his bookseller, and say, this is not the commentary for me. And who, on a famous occasion, leaned over his pulpit in Edinburgh and told his congregation that they would never get out of Romans 7 so long as he was their minister. And I said, I know it's a challenge to remember what I said a week ago tonight, but I said I thought there was something better to say. And that was this, that so long as I am your minister, or whoever is your minister, I hope it will be true that you will never get out of Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8. Because what Paul is doing in these chapters is not leading us, as it were, chronologically through the months and years of Christian experience. He is holding up before us what it means to have been transferred from the kingdom of Adam and the family of Adam into the kingdom and family of our Lord Jesus Christ, out of the kingdom in which sin reigns and death is present into the kingdom in which grace reigns and life abounds. And what he's really doing in the chapters that follow is holding up that diamond of being in Christ to show us the various facets of spiritual experience that are true for us because we are in Christ, to show us the beauty, and yet at the same time to show us that there is this basic truth of the Christian life, that we are indeed in Christ, but we are still in the bodies in which we lived when we were in Adam and some of us are still in the same Columbia in which we lived when we were in Adam. Or to use Paul's own language in Romans 7, he says, sin continues to dwell in us, even while it is true that Jesus Christ dwells in us. And so long as that is true, He has told us in chapter 6, though we have died to sin, sin has not died in us. And though we have been set free from the law, we are not yet perfect according to the requirements of God's law. 
And while these things are true, the Christian life is a battle. There are struggles in the Christian life. As the Christian grows, the Christian's sinfulness is more and more illumined in his or her heart. It is holy men of God who cry out, Oh God, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so, one of the great characteristics of the Christian is that he or she always needs to go to drink again from the river of saving grace in Jesus Christ. But now, having said that, we are getting out of Romans 7 from one point of view and into Romans 8, and we will linger here in this magnificent chapter for a number of weeks, perhaps right through to the end of the year. And that will be difficult for some of us for this simple reason, that we love the end of Romans 8. But I wonder if it is beginning to strike you as we've spent these weeks studying Romans, that Romans 8 is going to be all the better because we've studied Romans 1 through 7. And if that's true of the whole chapter, it's bound to be true of those glorious verses that come at the end of the chapter. And so I want us to take a little time, not enough time, by no means enough time, but at least a little time to consider what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here in Romans chapter 8. And beginning with the first four verses, there are three things that I want us to notice. The first of them is this. The Apostle Paul, as he has stretched us in Romans 7 and teaching us, this is a great lesson to learn as early as you can in the Christian life, that neither the Word of God nor the Spirit of God shrinks you. Neither the Word of God nor the Spirit of God shrink you intellectually. They expand you intellectually. And neither the Word of God nor the Spirit of God shrink you emotionally. The Spirit of God and the Word of God stretch our understanding, and they stretch our emotions. And Paul has been teaching us this, and now he's going to stretch these emotions in a slightly different way, because he begins this chapter by saying that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus his very first statement underlines that the gospel gives us an assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, this whole eighth chapter of Romans is all about assurance. It's all about the different ways in which the Spirit of God brings us into a settled enjoyment that our sins are forgiven, and that our God has become our heavenly Father. And reasons for that simply tumble out of the Apostle Paul. For example, in the first four verses, we have assurance of our salvation because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We have assurance of our salvation in verses 5 through 11 in the fact, verse 9, that we are no longer in the flesh, dominated by the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. We have an assurance of salvation that flows from the fact, verses 12 through 17, that we are the children of God. We have an assurance, verses 17 through 25, that arises from the fact that even the suffering we go through, no, especially the suffering we go through, is divine preparation for glory. The very thing that seems to stand in the way of glory is the instrument God uses to bring us to glory. We have an assurance in verses 26 through 27, because even although we are desperately weak, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. We have an assurance in verses 28 to 30 of our salvation, 
because God is committed to perfecting His eternal purposes for us, and we have this climactic assurance of salvation in verses 31 to 39, because nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so, the chapter begins with a glorious word of assurance that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that Paul uses that little word, therefore. There is therefore. He isn't actually referring back to the previous verse. He's probably referring back to the great argument he was using earlier on in Romans that Christ has made propitiation for our sins. He brings us justification. He brings us redemption. And with these treasures of grace received by faith, there is something that we can certainly all conclude if we trust in Jesus Christ, and that is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Some of us, from time to time, go to the optometrist. Those of you who wear contact lenses also go to the optometrist. I go to the optometrist probably all too infrequently, and I've been through all those phases when they were little men and old men to nowadays they're very young men, and they use these very sophisticated machines. But uh, they all use the same tricks, don't they? And one of them, I can't remember whether this is still true, but one of them is this, you know, you're reading the lines, you know, A-E-I-K, it's either a U or an O. And then as the optometrist works on on just checking uh, your eyesight, working on the, uh, the prescription, he'll say something like this, now, focusing your gaze on the second letter. Is this better, or is this better? You've never had your eyes tested. You have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) But he's wanting to know what prescription enables you to see that letter. I suppose there's a reason he chooses those letters. He wants to know what makes it sharp and what makes it clear. And so, he says, now, he says, there are all these letters, but focus on this particular letter. Now, let me try the spiritual optometry test. In chapter 8, verse 1, are you looking down at it? It's not written on my face. Look down on it. Look down on it just a moment. Is your first line, very first line, there is therefore now no condemnation. Is that your first line? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's your first line. Use the Pew Bible. That's the first line in the Pew Bible. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Now, focusing your gaze on that word, no. I want you to do something mentally. I want you to pick it up, and I want you to put it so that it's the very first word in the chapter, because that's where it is in Paul's Greek text. It's the very first word. No, you see? It's, it's, it's emphatic. No condemnation. That's what he wants to say. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. No. No! Therefore, you see, he's saying. But not only that, but the, the, the word he uses is actually rather a strong word. Maybe we could translate it something like not any. Not one. No, not one. Not even one. And that's the very point he's making. What he wants to emphasize here is, it's not just that there is some general sense that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is not 
any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember how he'd made the point, the marvelous point about the gospel in Romans chapter 5. He said, the miserable mess that we are in is all because of the one trespass of the one man. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that God's justification, God's removal of all condemnation follows many trespasses. And that's something that Christians, we Christians need to get hold of. This isn't just a blanket case of there's no condemnation. This is a proclamation that there isn't a single sin in my life that can possibly now condemn me because I'm in Jesus Christ, not even one. And why is that important? That's important partly because Satan has a way of reminding us of our sins, doesn't he? Or our own guilty consciences bring them to the surface. Remember how this was true of David in, in Psalm 25, and later life he's crying out to God and saying, Oh God, the sins of my youth, please don't remember them. And you could work your way through the whole of Scriptures interviewing men and women, and saying to them, now, why is this important to you? And here would be Noah arising and saying, this is important to me, because the great blemish on my life is that after all God did for me in the flood and that glorious deliverance and His marvelous covenant promise, I lay drunk in my tent and that sin haunts me, and it will haunt me to my dying day. And the gospel comes and says, Noah, there is not one condemnation for you, because the penalty for your sin has been paid in Jesus Christ. Or Isaiah, as he says, my very, the very things that seem to other people to be my righteousnesses, my ability in preaching that makes me such an honored prophet in the presence of God, I know to my shame that my sin has woven its way into the very best and strongest gift that God has given to me, and I cry out, oh God, I am a man of unclean lips. And at times I'm almost paralyzed to speak because I know I use the very best of God's gifts in me for my own self-aggrandizement. Isaiah, there is not one condemnation for you. Or Simon Peter, how could he ever get over that night? How could mortal man ever get over a night in which, with four-letter words, he had blasphemed the Savior who was on his way to the cross? One thing to blaspheme the Savior, but the Savior on his own, the Savior so clearly molested and demeaned and to deny that you ever knew him. Peter, there is not one condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And on and on you could go through Scripture and through history until you came to yourself, bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan, sorely pressed. What am I going to say to him? I'm going to say to him, John Newton wisely has taught us to sing, I may my fierce accuser face, and tell him, I'm not nearly as bad as you say. No, that won't work, because you're worse than he says. I may my fierce accuser face, and tell him, Christ has died. Or Charity Bancroft, whose hymn we used to sing to a totally different tune, and now we sing it to a modern tune. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
What do I do? Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Not one condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about it this way if it helps you. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ wore, at least in the last stages of His ministry? He wore a seamless garment that was never torn. You remember how the soldiers cast lots for it. Where is that seamless garment now? Well, spiritually, it's on every Christian believer, isn't it? robed in His righteousness divine. There are no seams that can come apart. There are no weak places in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is such a liberating reality for us and gives us such great assurance. Yes, it's a battle. We've died to sin, but we battle against it. We've died to the law, but we're not perfect according to its standards. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but because we remain sinful, because our consciences are often polluted with a sense of guilt, because Satan seeks to destroy us and to drive us away from the cross of Jesus Christ, life is a battle. But there is a sword in our hands, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we are able to say to the conscience that condemns us and to the devil who accuses us, there is no weakness in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'd be very surprised if there aren't many of us who find ourselves just suddenly smitten in conscience with some sin of the past, some failure, big or small, that Satan uses to paralyze us, to darken our minds, to take away our sense of assurance. Here is the gospel remedy for this. Not one condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, he begins with this glorious assurance that there is no condemnation. But then you notice, secondly, he goes on to describe the Christian's experience of the Spirit's liberation. No condemnation in Christ, but rather the Spirit's liberation in Christ. Now, follow his reasoning. You probably need to do this just with a little care. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, try and follow me here. Paul is not giving us the foundation on which verse 1 rests. It isn't because of what the Spirit does in our lives that there is no condemnation for us. What he is talking about here is the evidence or sign that there is no condemnation for us. He's speaking about a symptom of a new status. Let me try and put it this way. If I say to one of the physicians in the church, I'm sure I've got the flu, for I have a fever and a terrible headache. I am not saying that it's the fever and the headache that's caused the flu. I'm saying I deduce that it is true that I've got the flu. Now, I'm making this up. Don't let the doctors rush to me after the service. I'm making this up. I deduce it's true that I have the flu because I've got these classical symptoms of the flu. 
Now, that's the way in which Paul is reasoning in verse 2. He's saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and one of the evidences that I am in Christ Jesus, and therefore there is no condemnation for me, is that the law of the Spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, it's, it's fairly clear what Paul's saying here, isn't it? Or at least it's fairly clear what the, the heart of his statement is that just as God the Father does not condemn us, so the Spirit comes in. And the Spirit, as it were, follows through on God's purpose. And the Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death, and by the ministry of the Spirit. There is this marvelous reality, he says, that we are wonderfully liberated. But what exactly does he mean? This is a very striking language, isn't it? Why does he not just say, the Spirit has set you free from sin and death? Why does he say this rather strange language, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death? Well, I think Paul may be just playing a little on words here, but he clearly has what he said in chapter 7 in the background. In chapter 7 and verses 5 and 6, he'd said something like this. He says, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Let me put it like this. The law of God condemns us. The law of God, as it were, excludes us from God's presence and from life. It is the law that reveals our sin, and even in the strange way Paul has spoken about it in chapter 7, seems to stimulate something in me like a catalyst that, as it were, eh, eh, evokes a, a hostility and a rebellion against God's law from my heart. The law of God is a law that reveals and provokes sin and brings death. And God has delivered me from that. Why then does he speak about the law of the Spirit of life? Why does he drag in the word law here? Well, I think the answer is, uh, I don't know that it's possible to be certain about this, but I think the answer actually lies in the great promises God had given in the Old Testament about what would happen when God made the new covenant. These are two very familiar passages. Let me just read them to you. Here is Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33. Here is the new covenant I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And here is Ezekiel chapter 36, describing apparently the same future reality. I will sprinkle clean water, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I wonder if what Paul is saying is this, because it's a characteristic experience of the Christian believer. Apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, the law simply brings me into bondage. But when through the Spirit the law of God is written into my heart, that law becomes the very energy of my life, the energy of my obedience. And that is, in fact, always one of the great signs that somebody has become a Christian, isn't it? 
that the very things they hated, they come to love. That the very commandments that seemed to be so external to them, and they were always either pushing against them or trying to reach up to them, that through the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit, instead of being whips that condemn us, become, as it were, coals of fire that inflame us. And we're able to say with Old Testament saints as well as New Testament saints, Lord, I love Your law. It's my delight to walk in Your ways. I have no greater aspiration than to walk carefully according to Your teaching. I love it. You could go through the commandments that way, couldn't you? That your desire as a Christian now is to exalt the Lord God in all His magnificence and in His glory. You don't want to commit adultery anymore, do you? Yes, you struggle against the flesh. There are enemies out there that seek to lure you in, but your basic desire is to be faithful. You don't want to steal. You want to serve the Lord. It's sore to you if there is covetous within you, covetousness within you, because God has written His law powerfully into your heart, and you want to give and to love rather than to covet and to steal and so on down through the commandments. The truth of the commandments remain the same, but the desire for them, the love for them, the devotion to them, it's all transformed within me. What Thomas Chalmers so famously called the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, that's one of the great signs that we really are Christ's. It's not the foundation for our justification. God does not justify you on the basis of anything that He does in you. He justifies you on the basis of what He has done in Jesus Christ. But one of the symptoms, that's language Neil Matthias has been using recently in First Things, isn't it? One of the symptoms that I am someone for whom there is now no condemnation because I'm in Jesus Christ is that sweet liberation from the law merely as a means of condemnation and guilt to that blessed delight in God's law because I love Him and I want to serve Him. Well, if this is a symptom, what then is the ultimate cause? You see, Paul has begun with an assurance that there is no condemnation. He said one of the symptoms that that's true of us is that we know this liberation from the law of sin and death through the law of the Spirit of life. Now, here's the foundation. Following his logic, there is the proclamation, no condemnation. There is the evidence, we are set free from the law of sin and death. Now, what is the foundation for this? And here we come to one of the great summaries of the Christian gospel in verses 3 and 4. The foundation of this is found in the wonder of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see how he puts it. He says, God has done in Jesus Christ what the law could not do. In a way, what he is saying is, God has done what was impossible for the law. Or to put it another way, the impossible for the law, God has done. Well, what is impossible for the law? The law cannot justify sinners. That's what's impossible. Because of the weakness of our flesh. Paul is not saying there are holes in the law. Paul is not saying the law is not quite perfect. Paul is saying that by its very nature, the law cannot effect what it commands because of the weakness 
of our flesh. But of course, we often make that mistake, don't we? I've said this often enough in my life. One of the things that often happens when people, for one reason or another, become a little more spiritually serious is they determine they will try harder, do better, and they will keep God's law, and it whips them to death. And unless they see the gospel, they leave the law in absolute despair because it can never save. It was never meant to save. It doesn't have the power to save. Martin Luther puts it in a very Martin Luther kind of way. He says, the sinner is like a sick man who says to himself, I will drink wine and I will get better. And Luther says, he's not going to get better by drinking wine. But if a cure is given to him, then he can drink wine. Now, you understand that's an illustration. I'm not exhorting you all to go out and spend the rest of the week drinking wine unless anyone should misunderstand. You get the point. And we're like this. I remember hearing about a man whose cardiologist I knew, this very influential and successful man, discovered he'd a heart problem and he was going to solve that heart problem by rigorous exercise. And he killed himself in the process. You see, what he needed was a new heart, and then he could begin the exercise. What the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, now, says Paul, wait for it, wait for it. God Himself has done what His own holy law couldn't do because it was never meant to do. God condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's an amazing way of putting it, isn't it? Let me just pause on that expression of Paul's. He sent his son. His son. Because of our sin. I mean, I can imagine Paul saying, because of the amazing righteousness of the human race. God sent His Son. He said, Son, you've got to go and see these people. They're amazing. They love me. They trust me. They live for me. Son, go and visit them. No, no, no. It's men and women broken and bruised by the fall, rebels against God, aliens from His presence. And He says, My Son, go and visit them, and not only visit them, but die for them. He sent His Son. And then this amazing phrase, in the likeness of the flesh of sin. Now, two things will help us to see what Paul is saying. First of all, Paul does not say he sent his Son in the flesh of sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ had no sin. But nor notice does Paul say that God sent His Son in the likeness of the flesh of Adam. That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't send His Son, as it were, to the Garden of Eden, but He sent His Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin in order that he might experience what Adam's sin did to our flesh, causing sadness and sorrow and death and alienation and rejection. He sent him in the likeness 
of sinful flesh. He came without sin, but he didn't come without suffering and sorrow and weakness, and yes, even the experience of fear. In the garden of Gethsemane, oh my God, if there is some other way, let this cup pass from me. It's too much to bear. He came in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin. He condemned sin in His Son. That's why there is no condemnation for you or for me if we're Christ's. It's not just that Paul is trumpeting as though he were some kind of spiritual triumphalist. There is no condemnation for us. He's saying, do you understand, saints, the reason why there is no condemnation for us is because there was condemnation for him. The reason sin in you is not condemned is because your sin was condemned in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah's words, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement to bring us peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Now listen to these words. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief and condemned my sin in his Son. That's why, that's why I can be free from the accusations of Satan. That's what will dissolve the fierce accusations of my own conscience. I know that I am a sinner, but my sin has been condemned in Jesus Christ, and therefore will never, ever, ever be condemned in me. I wonder if you know these marvelous words of Augustus Montague Toplady. There's a name to conjure with. Augustus Montague, top lady, in a hymn entitled Faith Reviving. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing, that's the smallest British coin of yesterday, complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid, whate'er thy people owed, how then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? And then this, if thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, listen, payment God cannot twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. No double jeopardy. My sin condemned in the Lord Jesus, and therefore it can never, ever, ever be condemned in me. And when I grasp that, then the fruit of the gospel begins to take effect. And what the law required but could never effect in me, do you notice how Paul puts it in verse 4? The righteous requirements of the law begin to be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And one last thing, or almost last thing, do you notice how in these four verses Paul makes reference to the Father who sent the Son and to the Spirit who ministers in the heart of the believer? You see what he's saying? He's saying the reason you and I can enjoy assurance of salvation is because God has staked His very being as Holy Trinity on saving me. 
your assurance, Christian brother or sister, is as gigantic as God Himself in all of His three persons, working together to bring the poorest, weakest, dullest, frailest, most sinful saint to this glorious assurance of salvation. And that's why we've been moving round the churches tonight in these hymns I've been quoting. That's why we can sing with the Wesleyans, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. My friends, that's utterly unimaginable, isn't it? Little me, little frail me, who's failed so much, who's sinned so often, who has so many regrets about the way in which I've failed the Lord, can it be bold I approach the eternal throne? Yes, yes, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Oh, what a gospel! What a Savior! What a God! What glorious, glorious assurance. I wish I could pick up buckets full of it from an unending ocean of grace and just pour it all over you, because some of you probably struggle with this very thing. Well, here is a bucket full of grace. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the very reason that in Christ Jesus all their sins have been condemned. And now, at last, we're free. Heavenly Father, expand our understanding of this amazing salvation You have given to us in Jesus Christ. Cause it to thrill and expand our minds, that we may begin to grasp the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ for us. And then let it pour down into our consciences and into our affections, that we may begin to enjoy You as children would enjoy the love and assurance of their heavenly Father. And for this, our God we will praise You for all our lives, and then by Your grace for all eternity. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.